Good morning. Get myself organized. Um, this season is um, in the church calendar. We call this the season of Advent. Advent is a time of waiting. It's a time of expectation. But it's also a time of celebration. One of the great blessings of the church is that we celebrate Christ coming into our world. We celebrate not just in and around Harrisburg. We celebrate not just in and around this region and around this country. But we celebrate Christ coming for the world in the world. So it's amazing that this time of year in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, in South America, here in North America, we celebrate Christ coming into our world. We celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. We celebrate what Eugene Peterson said, flesh and blood taking on skin and moving into our neighborhood. The word Advent itself points to a coming, specifically the second coming of Jesus, as he'll return as the king. But every December, every time around Christmas, we celebrate not the second coming, but the first coming, when the God of all creation, the one who lived in radiance, took on skin and was born in Bethlehem. During Advent here at this church, we have um, several themes that we go through. The themes are hope, peace, joy, and love. For hope, we talked about the idea that hope is simply trusting God. We looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and at her story, and we said, what a blessing that for Mary, God chose her to bring his son into the world. And then we looked at that same call for us, how God chooses all of us to bring his son into this world. Last week, we talked about peace from God, and we looked at the Saint Anna, and we said from her story, what a blessing it is that when God gives us peace, God's peace is the world as it should be. But when God gives us peace, is that so that we can share it for our world? Peace isn't just something we maintain and hold on to. It's something we give to this world. And this morning, we'll look at Elizabeth. We'll look at her story. And in looking at her story, we'll find out that what joy is is simply celebrating God's blessings. And then next week, we'll conclude with love, looking at just Jesus coming. And what a blessing it is that God sent his son for the world. Let's pray together. God, in deep gladness, we give you all our thanks. Lord, with lasting happiness, we celebrate your goodness to us. Spirit, with exuberance, we exalt you. God, help us to count all our blessings. Lord, help us to make room in our hearts and at our tables. Spirit, help us to let our joy honor you. God, we take joy in your promises. God, we take joy in your son, Jesus Christ. God, we take joy in living for you. Amen? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 39 to 45 and then 57 to 66. Uh, we will also have the text up front so you can follow along there as well. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. And then down in verse 57, we pick up again in the story. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. There it is. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, 
There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was open and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was on him. What's fascinating about joy is that it's a word that we know. It's a word that we experience. It's a word that's very familiar to us. It's in our, our common speaking. Some of us even name our children joy. Joy is a word that we're very comfortable saying we know what it's about. Joy for us is a delight. Maybe it's a genuine smile. Maybe it's a good meal. Maybe it's watching kids play and squeal. For some of us, joy is jubilation. Maybe it's dancing like no one's looking, or dancing especially because no one's looking. Maybe it's being so happy that you're moved to tears. Maybe it's satisfaction over a job well done. Joy is delight. Joy is jubilation. For some of us, joy is bliss. Joy is holding a newborn baby for the first time. And I think part of the reason Pastor Patty will never leave this church is because I think she thinks it's her God-given mandate to hold all the babies of the church. So if you happen to drink the water, you will be having Patty as your friend. That's to the ladies. Good luck. Joy is a delight like holding a baby for the first time. Or maybe spending a night under the stars. Or maybe with those who are close to you when you can have these conversations where you're talking without speaking, just enjoying each other's presence. Joy is bliss. So for us, when we understand joy, we know that it's a delight. We know that it's jubilation. We know it's bliss. But it's also so much more, isn't it? Joy in the Bible tends to be a little bit more complicated than that. For example, in Psalm 35, we read, Weeping or sorrow may stay for the night, but rejoicing, his joy comes in the morning. So for us, joy is not just delight, jubilation, bliss. Joy also is a promise. It's a promise from God that no matter how dark the night gets, the light always comes. No matter how much you feel the suffering, there's always joy on the other end. No matter what you're going through, God not only sees you, but God's carrying you, and the morning will come. Sorrow only lasts for the night. His joy comes in the morning. Joy for us as the people of God is a promise. But joy is also a practice. Paul, in writing to the churches in and around Philippi, says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And I discovered this passage in, in high school, and, and it's right before the, the hymn of Philippians 2, 5, and 1, where it talks about Jesus, right? Emptied himself, right? Took the form of a servant, went to the cross. But before that, Paul lays out this beautiful argument where he says, you know, if you want to fulfill joy, you have to do this. And what this is kind of dawned upon me in high school, and I really thought, God is good, and I'm so grateful he, gave, he designed the English language just for me to see this, right? And what I saw when I read this passage, Paul seems to remind us, how do we practice joy? Well, the first way we practice joy is putting Jesus first. The second way we practice joy is living for others. 
And the third way you practice joy is then worrying about yourself. Now, for the English majors who are tracking with me, you'll realize that joy is just spelled out. Living for Jesus, J. Living for others, O. Then worrying about you, Y. How do we practice joy? Live for Jesus, live for others, then worry about you. That's how you practice joy. Jesus, other, yourself. So joy is a promise. Joy is a practice. But aren't you glad this morning that in Jesus Christ, we also have the prototype of joy? Passage to the Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Joy may be a promise. Joy may be a practice. But this morning as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the prototype of Jesus himself who for the joy that was set before him. We can say, why did Jesus go to the cross? It may have been to give us hope. It may have been to give us mercy. But for Jesus himself, he saw the end game. And the end game was that everyone who believed gets to come home again. That every child of God gets to be found again. That everyone who chooses to follow Jesus, everyone who gives their life to God, gets to come home to the Father. For the joy that was set before him, he endured Calvary's tree. For the joy that was set before him, he died for you and me. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the scorn, the suffering, the shame. But he triumphed for the joy that was set before him. So for us this morning, let joy be more than delight. Let joy be more than jubilation. Let joy be more than bliss. Let joy to you be a promise that whatever sorrow, whatever darkness, whatever night you're in, the joy, the light is coming in the morning. But let joy to you also be a practice. May we as a people be defined by joy that puts Jesus first that lives for others, and then worries about ourselves. And may joy be looking at Jesus as the prototype. That if we follow what's ahead of us, if we look at Jesus, we'll know that it's not just about going and making it through this day, but all of us have this great, great destiny where we get to be with God forever. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that I set before you, you can endure this life. As I thought about how or which character we can have to summarize joy. Which character held on to the promise that weeping only lasts for the night. Which character lived by fulfilling God, not just Paul's joy, but God's joy. Which character lived by putting God first, by living for others and then worrying about themselves. Which character looks to God as the prototype for joy. I was struck by the story of Elizabeth. Elizabeth, the name itself means oath of God. You know, in our culture, we don't focus too much anymore on name meanings. But what I love about Elizabeth is such a common name, right? We have Lizzie. We have Liz. We had a lady in this church before a couple years ago, and she used to go by Biz. And it took me a while to figure out how you get Biz from Elizabeth. And I still didn't figure it out, so I just called her Biz. But Elizabeth is a very common name for all of us. But what I love about the name Elizabeth is that in Old Testament times and New Testament times, your name meant something. So she walked around every day knowing that you are God's promise. 
An oath of God is a promise of God, is a testament of God. It is a covenant of God. So she wasn't just going around saying, my name is Elizabeth. She was going around knowing that even her name was God saying, you are my promise. You are my covenant. You are the good that I do. The other thing about Elizabeth that's fascinating, and I've been shouting out my English teacher in ninth grade, Miss Bivens. She changed my life forever. God bless her wherever she is. You know, Miss Bivens was really, really good, and there's stuff she taught me in ninth grade to help me in college, help me in seminary, help me even today. And when I looked at the story of Elizabeth and reading through this, I, I found that, that Mary and Elizabeth actually fit together quite well. They fit together in something called a foil. Now, for those of you who aren't English majors or didn't pay attention in ninth grade English class, I'll tell you what a foil is. I know you were wondering. You came to the church this morning and said, I want to know what a foil is. Well, let me tell you. There was a great, read, uh, was a great writer years ago. Um, I call him Willie Shakes. You might know him as Shakespeare. He wrote plays. That's what he did for fun. Um, he has this one that's probably my favorite called Hamlet. And in Hamlet, Shakespeare really, really develops this concept of foil. And what he does, what a foil basically is, is you have characters who basically shine light on each other. They all have a, a sense of commonality, right? Things and places where they all meet. But that commonality then is fleshed out because while they all have these similarities, they all approach life differently or they all come out different parts of the story. Now, I invite you to read Hamlet. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, you'll get all this fleshed out. But in this brief time, I want to say this, right? You have the commonality and you have the contrast. And the three principal characters of Foyle and Hamlet are Hamlet, Fortinbras, and Laertes. Now, all three of them are princes. That's what they have in common. Or in the case of Laertes, they'd like to be a prince or they think of themselves as prince. The other one is kind of related is that all three of them, and, and it is interrelated in their stories, but all three of them suffered the death of their fathers through murder, right? And what's fascinating about that is they are the original Avengers. Now, I know Disney's going to be printing money next year with all the movies they got coming out. I'll go see The Lion King at least 10 times. You're free to come with me. Um, but the original Avengers, I think, were Hamlet, Fort and Brasilaertes, because throughout the story, they're all trying to avenge their fathers, right? So you have this commonality. They're all princes. They all lost their fathers tragically. They all want to, to, to flesh out and to avenge their fathers. And if you read the rest of the play, you'll see that's their commonality. And throughout the story, you have these contrasts, right? So what does that matter with Mary and Elizabeth? Well, here's their commonality. They were related. They were cousins. They were kin. They were family. They were faithful. One of the things I loved about studying the story this year is that I never had this jump out to me so much more. But we rushed so much to the end and Jesus being born. We miss all the saints. We miss all the people who had years of faithfulness to God. You miss their stories. And that's why it's been fun to look at Mary and we'll look at Joseph next year. To look at Anna, we'll look at Simeon next year. And this morning, look at Elizabeth and look at Zechariah this year. Because you have people who for years followed God with all they had. For years were faithful to God. For years looked at God and they followed him in all they said and did. Jesus, you know, it's all in, in, in this culture anyway, some families hide the baby till Christmas Day. I think we have to have that same mindset when we look through the stories in Luke 1 and 2, right? Jesus is the end and he's the high point. But don't miss the stories of the saints of old who had these years of dedication and following God. And when you look at Elizabeth and you look at Mary, you see they're related, you see they're faithful. But you also see that they're favored. They're highly favored. Mary, of all the people in the world, has chosen to bring God's son into the world. But this morning, as we flesh through the story of Elizabeth, you'll see that she too was favored. But what are the differences? Well, Mary was poor. Elizabeth was rich, or at least well-to-do. 
Mary was engaged and just starting out her life. Elizabeth was married and probably married for decades. Mary was young. Elizabeth was old. They were both on different ends of the biological clocks. You know, Mary was just now starting her life, and Elizabeth was barren and barren for years. They had different levels of prestige. You know, Elizabeth's husband was not only a priest, but she too was from a priestly line, whereas Mary was maybe going to marry this carpenter as this 14-year-old. So you have a difference in prestige and class and how people looked at them. You have one who was blue-collar, right, one whose husband was going to be a carpenter, and the other one who was white-collar. Now, what does all this mean? I think the first thing it means for us this morning is simply this. God wants you. When you look at the story of Mary, you look at the story of Elizabeth, you see all these differences. But let it be a reminder to you that we may all be different, but God has use for all of us. God has use for you in his story. Whatever your story is, God does not care if this world identifies you as young and old. God does not care if this world identifies you as poor or rich, whether you're single or you've been married for years, whether you're at this end of the biological clock spectrum or that end of the biological clock spectrum. God doesn't care if you have prestige that the world gives you or you're just forgotten in the world's eyes because God sees you, God loves you, and God wants to use you. Mary and Elizabeth are not just different, but they're pictures to us that everyone has a place at God's table, that everyone has a place and everyone has a job that God wants them to do. So look at their differences as you look at your differences, but bring that to the cross. Bring that to God and say, God, how will you use me? Because when you look at Mary, when you look at Elizabeth, you look at two women who surrendered their lives to God. And now here we are, thousands of years later, preaching about their testimony of faithfulness to God. Don't let how the world defines you change how God thinks about you. Don't let how even you define yourself change the fact that God loves you, that God's working in you, and that God desires to use you to make his kingdom come and his will be done. The other thing about Elizabeth that's fascinating is that, you know, she is Mary's kin. She's Mary's family. And what I love even more than that is, you know, family is not just who you're blood related to. Family is people who you can go to for refuge and rest. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we read about Mary. After she meets with Gabriel, she goes and she's pregnant and she goes and she spends time with Elizabeth. To me, that says that there's a kinship there. She's still 14. She's still pregnant. Her story is still, God got me pregnant. And in a culture that probably wasn't too accepting of all those things, she finds refuge in Elizabeth. And I love that. You know, the African um, Saint Augustine said, you know, we as the church, we as Christians are to be a home and a hospital. And I love that when you look at Mary and Elizabeth, Elizabeth is willing to be a home for Mary. A place where she can find refuge, a place where she can find rest. And we don't know if anyone else saw Mary pregnant, how they judge her, what they said, but we know for sure that in Elizabeth's house, she can find peace. Elizabeth is Mary's kin because she's her refuge, she's her rest, she's her home, and she's her hospital. The other thing that's fascinating about Elizabeth when we look at her is we've talked about this a little bit, but she's very, very faithful. The text in Luke 1 talks about her being righteous. 
Talks about her observing all the laws of, the God, of God and the laws of Moses. Talks about her being blameless. What's fascinating about that is most conservative counts will have over 600 of the laws of Moses. So for a, a, a Luke to write and put this in print, that she's blameless before God, is not only intentional, but it says that this is a lady who was faithful to do everything that God asked her to do. Now that's one of my challenges. Am I doing everything God asked me to do? That'll not only arrest you, but hopefully that'll, that'll motivate you, right? To not just know what God says, but to actually do what God says. But here's a woman who does everything God told her to do. Why is that important? That's very, very important because she lived in a culture where being barren was a misfortune, where being barren was a disgrace, where being barren was a sin that you did or someone else did. But yet when God looks at her, he says, no. I don't care what the culture says. You're blameless in my eyes. I don't care what the people say. I love you. I don't care what they say to this value or you have this misfortune. You are my daughter. And I think that's very, very beautiful because throughout scriptures, you have women who are barren and sometimes God answers their prayer. But even in our culture, in our society, we as the church especially tend to look down upon people who don't birth children. But I think this reminder of Elizabeth this morning hopefully goes to everyone who needs to hear that God still thinks you're beautiful, that God still thinks you're good, that God still thinks you're, you're blameless in his eyes. And I want that to be a reminder to all of us this morning because sometimes our world and even ourselves doubt who we are in God's eyes. But God would not let Elizabeth do it. Sometimes the world out there might say what value they think you have but God would not let Elizabeth do it. May all of us this morning know that in Christ Jesus, we are blameless before the Father. May all of us this morning know that in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter what anyone says. It doesn't even matter what you say about you. It only matters what God says about you. God gives this word to Elizabeth this morning that you're not defined by what the world values. You're defined because I value you. You're defined because I love you. You're defined because I see you. I see your faithfulness. I see your goodness. I see you doing what I've asked you to do. Elizabeth is faithful and God sees it. And may that be a reminder to those of us who've been in the faith for decades. For those of us who've been in the faith for minutes. But for all of us in the faith, may it be a reminder to us that we don't just work for, you know, joy in heaven. We don't just work for, for gifts in heaven. We work, and even right now in our work, God sees us. God blesses us, and God uplifts us. Elizabeth was faithful, and God saw it. The other thing about Elizabeth that's real, real fascinating to me is that she is highly favored. You know, in the text, when, when the angel comes to, to her husband, Zechariah, and, and says, you know, I, well, he doesn't, well, he says, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah is sitting there thinking, well, I'm old. I'm kind of past that stage. My wife is old. She's past that stage. And, and like, are you sure you know what you're saying, right? And after that conversation, Zechariah is made mute, right? And we think he's also deaf because when you get to the end of the passage, he needs a tablet. So they don't even know if he can understand them. They ask him to write it out. But what I love about this passage is the more I looked into it, I realized that, you know, Elizabeth is very similar to some other people in the, the, the scriptures, you know? Sarah and Abraham, you remember that story? Remember when God came to Abraham and he says, I know you're old, right? I know you're very old. I know Sarah's old too, but you're going to have a son. Remember Sarah's reaction 
She wasn't with them. She didn't hear it, but she heard it. You know, she was in the back tent. And she did what? She laughed to herself. And maybe it's because I read this as a kid, but I always thought, you know, we, we elevate the name Isaac. We're like, and then God called her son Isaac, laughter, right? I honestly, that's how I read it as a kid. I was just like, God basically looked at her and said, oh, you think it's funny. You will call your son ha-ha. From now on, ha-ha will be your son. You like to laugh? Let's laugh all the time. Ha-ha, come here. But what I love about Sarah and Abraham, though, is their oldness did not define how God saw them. Even the laughter that we're laughing about this morning did not define how God found them. What defines that story is that God gave them mercy and God gave them joy and God gave them that son that was promised. But I also thought of another one that's not as well known and her name was Hannah. Hannah was actually very, very similar to Elizabeth. She too was the wife of a priest. Her husband was Elkanah. Elkanah was a man who, you know, lived in a time where, you know, they, they were polygamous. I don't know why anyone would do this, but they were polygamous. Well, at least the men were. I don't know if the women ever agreed to it, but that's a sidebar. They were polygamous. So Hannah and Elkanah had two wives. And what's fascinating about this story is that he loved them both. But generally speaking, if you have two wives, right, it's almost like in football they say if you have two quarterbacks, you've got none. There's this tension in their relationship. And the first wife is having kids. And remember, she's coming from this culture where to have a kid means that you're blessed by God. To have a kid means that, like, God likes you. To not have a kid means misfortune, means disgrace, makes judgment. And not only does she have to, the Hannah has to, to battle with this other wife, but this other wife was so mean to her that the text says that she was moved to weeping and crying. Right? She goes to the priest and she goes to the, the temple and she's crying out to God. And some of us have been there before where you're yelling out to God and there's no words coming out and your lips are moving. You don't hear anything. And what's funny is that the high priest Eli is walking by and he sees this and he goes to her and he's just like, it's too early in the morning. You're drunk. Put your beer and your wine away. And Hannah looks up to him and says, I am not drunk. I'm just crying out to God, and I know my God will hear me. And if God does hear this prayer, if I have this son, I will give this son back to God. And that's what she did, right? And, and, and she has this son named Samuel. Why is Samuel important? Samuel is the one who anoints David. And David gets to be the, the father of Jesus, the ancestor of Jesus. So it's fascinating looking at, at, at Zechariah and Elizabeth and Hannah and Elkanah because both their sons, John the Baptist, comes out and, and, and Samuel comes out and they both get these strict rules, right? They both get to be Nazarites. They can't drink nothing. You know, they got to, I don't know if they had to eat locusts, but that's where John took it, right? But they had these strict rules that they had to live by. So when I think about Elizabeth, I, I hear Hannah in her story as well. Because, again, Hannah is not just defined by being down. It's not just defined by, by people around her talking down to her. It's not just defined by praying so loud that she's crying out to God and being at the depths of her soul. But she's defined by what? God hearing her prayer, God giving her mercy, and God blessing her with joy. So when we get back to Elizabeth and Zechariah, and we know when John the Baptist come, we see that this is a story of praise. Now, someone challenged me on this, so I had to read in between the services to make sure. But I think I'm still right. There's nothing in this story that says God went directly to Elizabeth, right? The angel comes, and he goes to her husband in the temple. He has this vision, right? Afterwards, she felt like Zechariah leaves, he's deaf and he's mute, then she becomes pregnant. 
Why is that important? It's important because as soon as she becomes pregnant, she gives praise to God. What a blessing and a reminder for us. God's blessed us with so much, but do we have that practice? As soon as God does something good, is our first thought to praise him? Is our first thought to give him the glory? Is our first thought to stop and sing a song of, of just joy and hope to him? As soon as she finds out, she gives praise to God. And in her story, she too discovers mercy and joy. So in this passage that we, passages we read this morning, Mary comes and she visits after Gabriel appears to her. And Gabriel says, you will conceive and you'll have a child. So Mary gets in there. And this is one of my favorite scenes in all the scriptures. She gets to the home of, 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 of Elizabeth, her kin. She walks in the door and, and she gives this greeting, right? Almost like, hey, I'm here. Hey, I've arrived. But what I love is upon Mary's greeting, the baby in Elizabeth jumps and dances for joy. It's a beautiful scene because here's the thing. There's nothing to that says that Elizabeth even knew Mary was pregnant at this point, at this point. Right? But just upon the greeting, the baby leaps for joy. And then God actually promised Zechariah that you will be filled with the Spirit and your wife will be filled with the Spirit to give birth to this child. And as soon as Mary's greeting, the baby leaps for joy. There's this mutual thing that's happening here that the Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and she has this revelation. And she says, man, the baby leapt for joy at your greeting. But why does the mother of my Lord come to see me? That is revelation. There's no way she could have known Mary was pregnant, but when the Spirit comes upon her, she knows that not only is Mary pregnant, but she's pregnant with the Savior of the world. And then what I love is they have this beautiful scene of what I think true friendship is. Because they have this mutual blessing, this mutual joy, this mutual celebration of what God had done in them. To me, that's what friendship, that's got to be a core tenet of all your relationships, right? To be able to set up our time to celebrate God's goodness, to celebrate what God's done, to celebrate God moving in you. That's true friendship. They get to celebrate God doing good. And then the second passage is you have this communal celebration. I got to be honest with you, as a kid when I read this, I always thought, man, these people were nosy. Right? Because if I'm reading this right and I'm tracking this right, this is a culture that probably didn't think too highly of her being older and not having kids, right? Especially not the pastor's wife, right? Like she's the priest's wife and she can't even have kids. So obviously she's doing something wrong. They ain't living right. This is the culture that she lived in. And then I read this passage and I'm like, so now all of a sudden the baby's here and now all you want to do is celebrate. But this week I think God worked through some of that with me. And he says, here's the thing it doesn't matter. If they were nosy, it doesn't even matter what they said before. It doesn't matter if they looked down upon her before. All that matters is they came to celebrate. They came together as a community to celebrate John's birth. And I thought that was amazing that because of Elizabeth's faithfulness, because now that God has shown mercy, the whole world and all of Judea in our passage kept telling this story of faithful Elizabeth and the baby John. A faithful Zechariah and Elizabeth who followed God all their life, who were blameless before God, and the baby John. So then the other funny thing about this scene, though, is that you have Elizabeth who undoubtedly was shamed in her culture and among her people. But God shows her the blessing. And the thing for us that I think God is saying through this simple act is what? That God's love is always greater than shame. I think we need to hear that. 
Because I think even as Christians, we do this shame thing all wrong. But God's love is greater than your shame. And it's not just about the shame that others try to put on you. Sometimes it's the shame that we put on ourselves. There's so many of us as Christians who might be able to believe that God forgives us, but we can't forgive ourselves. There's so many of us as Christians who know that the world is always looking down upon us and we take that shame and we hold on to it. But what I love about this story is God says, no, 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 Elizabeth, let's celebrate this miracle. Let's celebrate with joy because my love for you will always be greater than shame. But I also love that, you know, maybe those people were nosy. Maybe they did turn their nose up at Elizabeth and Zechariah. Maybe they did talk behind their backs. Maybe they would say, God bless you, and then go to the house and talk about them. You're not church people to do that. Some church people, not y'all. Y'all good. But what I love about it, though, is God seems to be saying, this might not be exegetically pretty, but what I love is this truth. God's blessing is always going to be greater than the haters. You know, there's people in this life who are going to look down upon you, who are going to despise you, who are not going to want to work for your good. But please know this morning that you have someone stronger than that on your side. You have a God who is indeed working for your good. But you have a God who says, my blessing to you will always be greater than anything you can face. But then we get to celebrating. And I love the celebration is simply, again, not a delight, not just jubilation, not just bliss, but it's just celebrating God's blessing. And then this is probably my favorite part of the story because I felt this part in my soul, right? So at the end of this, you know, the baby comes and there's eight days. And in, in the, the law of Moses and the, the Old Testament law, after the eight days, you circumcise and you give the son a name. Now, for those of you who are removed from this culture, you might not understand this, but I felt this in my soul, Right? The people come up and they're just like, so what are we going to name him? Zechariah? Zechariah Jr.? Um, what are we going to name him? Elizabeth is like, his name is John. And they're like, wait, what? But who's John? Like, you don't have any Johns in your family? Like, there's no John anywhere on the tree. Now, for those of you, you're like, I don't know why that's a big deal. Because in your culture here in America, you get to pick names that you like for your kids. You know, you're just like, I, I like the sound of John. That sounds good, right? Well, in my culture, for example, kind of close to Jewish culture, is you don't necessarily get to do that. Right? Like you name people after other people. So, for example, if you go to anything in my family where the extended family is there, and I said this last week, I think, too. If you say the name Daniel, right, you can be talking about 20 different people. Because in our culture, it's this, this, this connectedness to each other, right? You can't just pluck names out of the air. You have to be connected to your family. So we use the same names, and we just recycle the same five or ten, right? So, for example, we have cousins, or I have cousins. My younger brother's name is James. I'm Henry. We have another set of cousins we're close to who are also Henry and James, right? And you're like, oh, they're all named. No, we're named after four different people, right? All sharing the same name. So that, I'm saying all that to say, you have to understand why the people are confused. In their culture, you have a son, you name it after the dad or the grandpa or the uncle, somebody that we know. So they said, like, are you sure? Like, Zechariah Jr. sounds good. And she's like, no, his name is John. So then they go to the dad who, at this point, after his vision in the temple is not talking, we're not sure if he can hear, and they go to him and they're like, hey, um, what is the name? Like, what's the name going to be? And the Greek actually says they nodded to him. They're like, give me something, anything, anything except this John, right? And he pulls out his tablet, and he writes, his name is John. And what I love about that, though, is that he immediately, his tongue is loosed, right? Immediately he can hear again, and immediately he praises God. Another reminder to us that when God blesses us, our reaction is supposed to be praise. 
So Zechariah starts praising God. And I love that. I love that, again, because, again, this is what God told him to do. Now, I, I said this in the first service. I got to share it with you guys and bless you with this. This names thing is very, very important. You know, when we um, decided to name our, our, our children, we picked Harper and Kennedy. And, and my mom's coming from this culture, too, where it's just like, but where did you get that from, right? And it's fascinating because we're like, we just liked it. We like the name Harper. And it took my mom a couple months to work on this. So she comes back and she says, I know why you named her Harper. And I was like, oh, do tell. You know, do tell me. I want to know why, you know. And she says, it's because your dad grew up in Harper, Liberia. And I was just like, is that even true? <laughs> like, I'm like, at the time, I was like almost 30 years old. And I was just like, you've never said any of this before, right? So then I called like another uncle. I was like, did my dad really grow up in Harper, Liberia? He goes, yeah, dude, he graduated from Harper High School. I was like, that's crazy, right? So my mom took that as a victory. Because, again, in our culture, you can't just pick names out of the air, right? You got to be related to something, right? So we tried again, and we had Kennedy. And we're just like, yeah, we like the name Kennedy, you know? And I was, she's like, I know why you picked Kennedy. I was like, oh, geez. Like, here we go again, right? And she goes, let me tell you. I was like, oh, do tell, right? And she's like, when you were born... You were born in Monrovia, Liberia, in JFK Hospital. That's why you picked Kennedy. <laughs> and I was just like, you can't win, right? You can't win. Like, you just got, sometimes you got to take your losses and keep moving, right? But the names mattered, and the names mattered to John, and they mattered to Zechariah, and they mattered to Elizabeth. But they chose John because that's what God gifted them with. So I thought about how to, how to finish this, and I realized that our lesson this morning is that God calls all of us to live joyfully. And what we mean by that is simply celebrating God's blessings. Now, I know for some of us, especially this time of year, joy is not just a thing we can snap our fingers and feel joy. There's some of us who are struggling. There's some of us who it's not just like, oh, I want to be happy, so I'm going to be happy. It's deeper than that. And I think there's a lot of us who get a lot of help, you know, talking to people and all this other stuff to help us. So I'm not saying that this is, you do these four things and you'll always have joy. But I'm saying for all of us, if we practice these four things, it's more likely that we will have joy. The first one is simply this. We, as people who believe in Jesus, have to be better at counting our blessings. You know, this week I read a story for the class we teach on Wednesday night, and it was about a mother who had kids and a husband who lost his job during the Depression. And, and they were out of food. They were out of money. She didn't know where to turn next. And she was so much at the, 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 the lowest of her depths of her being that, that she decided that, you know, I don't want to live anymore. And while she was lay, laying on the bed with the kids, forgetting that, like, if I don't want to live anymore, not just what happens to my kids, but I could possibly harm my kids by, by what she turned on the stove and the gas was pouring. Um, I don't know if it was a record player or radio, but a song started playing that she could hear off in the distance. And the song was simply, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And as that song played and played and played, she realized that I got to get better at counting my blessings. She realized that I can bemoan and say, I, we don't have a job. We don't know what's next. Or we can say, you know what? We don't have a job. We don't know what's next. But we have God on our side. And she got to this point where she realized that her children who were laying next to her are also a blessing. So this morning, what I want to invite you to do is to get better at counting your blessings. 
If you're breathing this morning, praise God. If you're in your right mind this morning, praise God. If you can thank God for your health this morning, praise God. If you can thank God you got a job this morning, praise God. We as Christians have to do a better job at counting God and counting our blessings. I had a friend in college who um, was so excited. He came into my room and he says, yeah, I got a tattoo. And I was just like, okay, that's exciting. It's like, what'd you get? I got a cross. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Would you, why? You know, he's like, I want to always be reminded that Jesus died for me. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm like, huh, that's okay. That's cool. Good for you. I mean, I, I don't need a tattoo to remind me, but I'm glad you do, right? But what I love about that story is years later, he has this visual reminder that God died for him. And it's actually very Old Testamental. In the Old Testament, they built altars to help them remember, right? And I think all of us need to do a better job at counting our blessings. It might be for you making a prayer journal. It might be for you just writing all the things you're grateful for and saying, thank you, God, right? It might be just stopping once a day to say, God, thank you, I'm here. But all of us have to get better. If you want to practice joy, you got to count your blessings. Because in a joyless world, if we, the joyful Christians, aren't counting our blessings, how is the world going to know joy? Right? We always tell people we have good news. But if your life doesn't look like good news, right? And if there's nothing you're celebrating, how are people going to believe anything you say is good news? If they look at you and you look joyless, how do you invite them to be joyful? We have to get better at counting our blessings. The second thing I think we need to get better at is we have to make room in our hearts and we have to make room at our table. And what I mean by that is simply this. If God hates all the people you hate, you've done a really good job making God in your image. God's not a God who's defined by hate. God's defined by love. And what I think about that is that we have to start not just practicing joy, but bringing joy into the world. So there's going to be people we disagree with. There's going to be people we don't get along with. There's going to be people we work with, people we live with, people who we cross on the street. But if you're supposed to be a joy-filled Christian... How do you bring joy into that? You pray to God and ask him to make room in your heart for that person and to make room at your table. You know, I've always loved food, so being an Anabaptist is a great blessing to me. Because one of the things we Anabaptists hold on to is simply this. Breaking bread blesses people. If there's someone you don't get along with, eat a meal with them. Be defined as the one who brings in coffee for the office once a week. Why? Because you can. Why? Because you're spreading joy. Be the one who invites a coworker to lunch with no other agenda but just to say, how are you doing? We need to be people who are defined by bringing joy into our world. And the way we can do that is praying to God and say, God, make room in my heart for others. And then make room in my table so we can break bread together. This third one is one of my favorite ones. It's probably the best advice I'll give you in a long time, so hopefully you're paying attention. If you want to be a joyful person, do what brings you joy. If joy is a delight to you and it's a genuine smile, or it's a, if it's a genuine smile, hang with people who smile a lot. If joy is a good meal, make a good meal or eat a good meal. If joy is squealing, we got two kids, you know, I'll love to give you them and you can babysit them. It'd be wonderful. Everyone wins there. If joy is dancing like no one's, la no one's looking, then dance, right? If joy is a job well done, then, then find a project and invest in that project and pour yourself into that project and do it well. If joy is holding babies, get your child abuse clearance, and there's the door. We'll send you up the ramp. We have tons of them at this church. But if joy is, is spending a night under the stars, spend a night under the stars. 
If joy is investing in people, invest in people. Do what brings you joy. And hear me on this. If we're supposed to be joy-filled people, but we're not even willing to do what brings us joy, how do we give joy to the world? We might sing joy to the world, but I think God wants us to be joy to the world. And the last one is kind of where we started. You have to trust the promise that no matter what darkness you're in this morning, that joy is coming in the morning. You have to trust the God that if you do this practice of putting Jesus first, of living for others, and then worrying about yourself, that you can practice joy. And also, if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you can have joy. I'd like to invite up the choir as we sing our last song, Pastor Esty in the choir. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors. We would love to pray for you about anything and everything. So please, please come up. But this morning as we sing this final song, may we be reminded simply this, that joy is celebrating God's blessings. So the question I want to leave you with this morning is, what has God blessed you with? And how are you going to celebrate it this week? What has God blessed you with? And how are you going to celebrate it this week? Because we are called to be joyful. Yes, Christ has come, but Christ is still coming, and he wants to come into this world through you. And he can do that by living joy-filled lives. So what has God blessed you with? And how are you going to celebrate joy this week? Let's stand and sing together. A Psalm of David, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.